Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. God, thank you and praise you for the day. Thank you that um, our souls can praise you, Lord, that you've allowed us to come into your presence, God, by, by your grace and mercy poured out through your Son, Jesus Christ. You are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, quick to love, Lord. It's evident throughout the pages of the Old Testament, and it's definitely evident in our lives, God. I pray, Father, that as we study your word now, Lord, that you would just draw us unto you, and once again, we'd see the love that you have for us, Lord, uh, the love that sent your Son to the cross. We praise you. Help me to rightly divide your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So we began this ascent up the mountain of Messiah, if you want to call it that, last Wednesday as we read chapter 49, and that's where kind of the, the foothills are and this, this ascent begins, that, that peaks at chapter 53. We're going to reach that next week. So let's go. Chapter 50, um, verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Now, this is an interesting way to start a chapter. And on on the first glance at it, you're like, what in the world are you talking about here, Lord? Because it says, thus says the Lord. What's going on is God is actually answering the Israelites' challenge. And he's challenging them back. Um, what, they, what they're going to say, remember, they haven't even gone to the Babylonian captivity, but what they're going to say once they're in the Babylonian captivity is they're going to claim that God has cast them off. Oh, God just doesn't care about us anymore. Look at us here in Babylon. We're a mess. He doesn't, he doesn't give a rip about us anymore. And so he's, he, God has cast us off. And that, is that really the case? Is that what has happened? Has God cast them off and just left them you know, out there to rot in Babylon. And so he begins this line of questioning. Now, maybe with that context, we can read the question again as he's challenging them and what they would believe. He says, thus says the Lord, where's the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I've put away? Or, uh, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? He's like saying, if I've put you off, you know, where's the divorce certificate? Where's the, where's the, which creditor did I sell you to? You got any proof for you to say that I've cast you off? That's what he's saying. And then he says, for your iniquities, you've sold yourselves. And for your transgressions, your mother has been put away. So he's asking for proof. Show the certificate of divorce. Show me the bill of sale. Uh, But then he gives them the truth. In truth, they've sold themselves to sin. And they've ended up in Babylon because of the choices that they've made. God called them from Abraham. Abram was his name, of Ur, of the land of Ur in the Chaldeans. He wasn't an Israelite. God, God called him out of idol worship, pagan worship, Abraham. And from that time forward, promised unto Abraham and his descendants that he, those people would be the apple of his eye. And God doesn't change. God does not change. He upholds his promises. 
And his promise was that when Israel was obedient to the commandments of God, God would bless them. And when they were disobedient, he would chastise them. God's a good parent. <laughs> when, you're, when, when you're a good parent, you, when your kids are doing well, you, you, you commend them for what they're doing. You, you uh, um, bless them and you, you raise them up and you, uh, you highlight the things that they're doing well. And when they, when they do wrong, you chastise them, you correct them, you set them back on the right path. And that's what he's done with the nation of Israel. God keeps his promises. He does not change. It says in verse 2, Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. So God's saying, do, do I lack the power to change things? Could I, could I have made this so? Certainly I could have made this so, but I didn't. Do, do I, you know, am, am I able to change these things? Is my hand shortened? Do I ha not have the power? No, in fact, I can dry up the sea till the, the, the fish stinketh, as it says in the King James. The, 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 does God lack the power to change things? The answer is no. The problem is not with him. It's their hearts who have fallen away from him. Verse 3, demonstrating his power again. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. Now, verse 4, it's an interesting transition. This is now going to be, um, as we're leading up to Messiah, this is, this is actually Messiah speaking. Verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned. That's a, a beautiful thing. Jesus, the, the Messiah here, uh, unidentified at this point, the Messiah is saying he knows what to say. He's been given the tongue of the learned. The New Testament would say that love, or sorry, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the Messiah here is saying that he knows what to say. What does he know to say? He knows to speak love. He knows to, to let his language be good, um, driven by love. The Messiah has the tongue of the learned because he speaks forth love I love that word, to him who is weary. We all experience that. On Wednesday night, probably more so than other days, <laughs> Sunday morning perhaps, we experience what it is to be weary. But God refreshes us with his word. May we look, may we, the followers of the Messiah, look to be an encouragement to those we love by the things that we say. I, I, I enjoy, um, started teaching a Tuesday night Bible study to some young men at the dance studio who, uh, they're the high school kids that dance there, and uh, God's opened a door for me to speak into their lives and um, training them up in, in how to be a godly example. And uh, one of the things, in fact, the thing that we talked about this week is that as they are the leaders of the, the studio, I mean, everybody looks to these young men, all the young boys look up to them, 
and all the girls are crazy about them, you know? And, and so it's just like everybody looks to this group of young guys, and I, you know, I, I challenged them to say, what are, you, what are you doing with the stage that God has given you? How are you speaking into these young girls' lives? How are you speaking into these young men, these young boys that are looking up to you? Are you building them up? Are you encouraging them? And my homework assignment for the week was actually, I want, I want you to write down what you, your words of encouragement. You speak a word of encouragement to somebody every day. That's your homework, and write it down and bring it back to me. I challenge you guys to do the same thing. Could you do that? Could you go a week and write down something that you said encouraging to somebody else every day? That's, what, that's the, the language we should be striving for. That's the, 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 the life-giving words that we should be having. That's the life-giving word that he has given to us, right? Ephesians chapter 4 would say, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that, they, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Let the things that come from your mouth impart grace to those that are hearing. And what I like at the end of that verse 4 is he, he says, He awakens me morning by morning. It is day by day He is loving us. His mercies are new every morning, the Psalms say. May we seek Him morning by morning. Amen? May we, may we seek to find Him each and every day. I love this, another Spurgeon quote, imagine that. <laughs> but it's, he said, let us not seek the face of man before we have sought the face of God. Let us not seek the face of man. And this is talking about day by day. Let us not seek the face of man before we have sought the face of God. What's the first thing you do in the morning? What's, after, you, after the alarm goes off and you do your business, <laughs> let's assume, I mean, are you clicking Facebook? Because if so, then the first thing you're doing is seeking the face of man. Or are you clicking version because you want to seek out God? Just, just a simple challenge to say, what's the fir- how do we spend the first moments that God has given us in every day? May we seek Him out. Verse 5 says, The Lord God has opened my ear. This is still Messiah speaking. And I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. The Lord God has opened my ear. Now that's an interesting phrase because... We think of, are your ears open, right? You know, boy, are you hearing me? That's not what he's saying there. He's actually talking about having his ear pierced there. Um, So in the Levitical law, you could have a slave for seven years. Now you were allowed to have, if somebody was indebted to you, you were allowed to put that person into your personal service as a servant in your household you would provide for them for the maximum of seven years. After seven years, no matter what the debt or what the debt was still owed at the end of seven years, if it was a Jewish brother of yours, you had to let them go. You had to set them free. If, however, that person, the the servant, at the end of seven years recognized that you had been a good master, you had been worthy of of living in their house, and, and they had taken good care of you, and you recognized that this was probably the best life that you were ever going to have, then, then the, your master would take you to the doorpost in the house and put your ear on the doorpost and pierce it through with an owl. Owl, however you say that. A-W-L, owl, right? Owl, owl, owl. Not an owl. <laughs> no, not an owl. An A-W-L. And then you would put a, a gold hoop in your ear 
And what that would reckon, that w- what that would tell everybody is that you had served out your seven-year sentence, you had served out your seven years as a servant, and you recognized that things were good, and so you became a bond servant, a servant by choice. And you lived out the rest of your days serving in that house, and that's what the, the gold hoop represented. And that's what, is, that's what is being spoken of here in verse 5 when he says, the Lord God has opened my ear. In other words, the Messiah came as a servant by choice. Jesus, our Messiah, and that's what we're learning through the book of Mark. Mark portrays our Messiah as the humble servant. And, and he came as a servant to serve, to seek and save the, the lost, to serve the Father and accomplish his will. His will was to seek and to save the lost. And so this is just a representation. It's not that Jesus necessarily had a gold hoop in his ear. That's not what I'm trying to say. But it's just to say that this, the Messiah came by by, uh, by choice to be a servant. He wasn't rebellious. He didn't turn away from that. Verse 6, a, a verse that would be familiar probably, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. Wow. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. That doesn't sound like the Savior. That doesn't sound like the one that was going to rescue uh, Israel from Rome. The political leader wouldn't be one that would have his back exposed to the Romans. The, 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 the king that was going to take over Israel wouldn't be the one that would be spit in his face and have his beard ripped out. Unless that was what God intended. That the Savior, Messiah, must come and first die a death that you and I desire, deserve to die. And when you consider the trials that Jesus went through at the end of his life, there before Pontius Pilate, where in fact he was beaten, where his beard was ripped out, where his face was spit upon, where he did give his back to be flogged on our behalf exactly fulfilling what is given us here hundreds of years before in verse 6. And the thing I want us to know, this is a beautiful display that the, of the love that God has for us, is the first two words of that verse, verse 6. I gave. He wasn't forced into this. He wasn't coerced into it. He wasn't pressed into it and, and, and didn't have a choice in the matter. He fully had a choice. That's what we learned in the earlier verses. We know the power of God. He fully had a choice. Just like he said when, when Peter cut off the ear of the, of the servant there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, I, I could call down legions of angels if I wanted it to be so. This would be over in an instant. But he surrendered his will to the Father. He said, not my will be done, but thine. And he exposed his back. He gave his back to be beaten on our behalf. It's going to tell us in 53, it's by those stripes that he took on his back that you and I are healed. It's by the blood shed that our sin is forgiven. I gave, it was his choice to give us these things. Verse 7, For the Lord God will help me. Therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore... I've set my face like a flint 
and I know that I will not be ashamed. Verse 7 is the why of verse 5 and 6. God is with him, and so he's able to endure verse 5 and 6. God is with him, and he won't be disgraced. He's not going to be ashamed. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, and, and who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The shame came in the cross, and it was there, but he set it aside. He despised it. It says, ultimately, he would not be ashamed. Why? Because the cross isn't the end of the story. The empty tomb is. He is near, verse 8, who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. God's grace through the Messiah to come will stand longer than those who oppose it. That's what verse 8 and 9 say. God's grace through the Messiah will stand longer than those who oppose it. He says, indeed, all that oppose will grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Verse 10, who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. This is a question he's calling out. Who who here fears the Lord? Is there anybody that has their heart turned toward him? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who's who's trusting in what the Messiah has to, to say? And then he says an interesting statement. Who walks in darkness and has no light? And you know what? We who call ourselves followers of God, sometimes... When we're walking in this world, it seems like we walk in darkness. We've lost sight of the light. Sometimes in this world, it gets rather dim, that light does. And in those times of trouble, what God is saying here in verse 10, trust in the name of the Lord. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him rely upon his God. In those times where darkness seems to be overtaking the light in our lives, we need to trust in the name of the Lord. His name is a strong tower. The righteous run to it. We are to rely on our God. In other words, trust the promises of God even above what we see, even above our present circumstances. Yeah, it looks dim, but this is what God says. Yes, it looks like I'm in a dark spot right now, but these are the promises of God, and I stand on those even above my observation of the present and circumstances. When we don't know what He's doing, we still know who He is. Right? Even when we don't know what, what the next step is for our lives, we still know who He is. We still stand on those promises of His truth. If you walk in darkness tonight and you can't find the light, trust in the name of the Lord. Rely upon our God. It says in 11, Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves as sparks, 
walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you've kindled. Then this is what you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So in that time of temporary darkness where we seem to have lost light of lost sight of the light it's a mistake for you and I to try to create our own light that's what he's saying you want if you make your own fire you shall have this you shall lie down in torment is what he says so don't try to create our own light rather trust that he is the light and find him press into him lord i'm seeking for you even if my you know, the tears fill, fill my pillow at night. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still trust that you are God. In chapter 51, we're going to see this phrase, two phrases repeated three times each. He's going to say, listen to me and awaken. Three different times each in, in the chapter. I think he's trying to get their attention. Maybe he's trying to get our attention too. Listen, listen. How many times do you say that to your kids, right? Listen to me, listen to me, listen. Hey, 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 listen. Race, 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 right? That's, that's what we do. That's what everybody does with race. <laughs> Wake up! Anyway, sorry. Tangent. Verse 1, 51. Listen to me. There it is, first time. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness. You who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and the hole of the pit from which you were dug. So the first thing he says in, in this listen to me is look back at your life, Christian. Look at the pit you came from. Look at the hell God brought you out of. Do you really want to go back to that? Does that look good to you still? He's pulled us out of the miry clay. He set our feet upon the rock. Look, the, look at the rock in which you were hewn. Look at the hole of the pit in which you were dug. Look at how far God has brought us. When we lose sight of that light, let's look back and see how far God has brought us. He says in verse 2, Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Think about, in human terms, Think of the impossibility of the promise of God that he gave to Abraham and Sarah. Right? He took Abraham outside of the tent. Look at the stars, Abraham. They'll be, you'll have descendants as numerous as the stars. This is when Abraham is 90 years old, 80, whatever it was, and, and has no children. Sarah is beyond the years of bearing children. It's a human impossibility what God has said. Consider the impossibility of those promises, humanly speaking. He can do it again. He can do more. That's what he's saying. Look, look at what I gave to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. You, you all go back to the, the, the Jewish people, go back to Abraham and Sarah. I called him alone. He wasn't saved. He wasn't following me. I called him. He was a, chasing after pagan gods. I blessed him. I increased him. And became the nation of Israel, the apple of my eye. Verse 3, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden. That sounds good. And her desert like the garden of the Lord. That sounds really good. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. 
within this context of redemption. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about Messiah coming. He's coming to redeem us. In the context of redemption, God's going to restore Jerusalem to a likeness of Eden. We know that, that, that Jesus is going to return to the city of Jerusalem. It's going to become Zion. And for the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign, Jesus is going to rule, for, rule earth from Jerusalem. And when he is ruling from that state, it will be a, a, a utopia, a Zion-like state. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden. There's people that, that, that have done archaeological digs and have discovered um, the possibility of certain plants that may have been around at the time the Garden of Eden was around, and there's, you know, 50-foot fern leaves, you know? There's 10-foot-tall asparagus stalks that people have found, uh, that, you know, fossilized records of that kind of stuff. If that's what the Garden of Eden was like, that's a pretty cool physical thing. I mean, grapes as big as your head, you know, something like, I mean, that'd be all right. But as cool as it would be physically in Eden, the better thing is that Eden, man was in fellowship with God. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. As cool as it might be physically in Eden, I want that fellowship restored. I'm going to hang out. You know, we talked about this before. I'm going to Jesus' Bible study when he rules from Jerusalem. Now get me a plane ticket because we're going and, and I'm going to hang out at Jesus' Bible study. The, re- the relationship, the fellowship between God and man is going to be even greater than the physical attributes. He says in verse 4, Listen to me, my people, second time, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me and I will make my justice rest as the light of the peoples. So this is the second time he's saying, listen to me. And what I want us to note is it says, listen to me, my people. Give ear to me, O my nation, right? And I will make my justice rest as the light of the people. Look at the next verse. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. My arms will judge the people. The coastlands will wait upon me and my arm they will trust. Notice a reoccurring word there. Mine. Whose is this? All of this is God's. This is He's who's in control here. He, it's Him in control. It's my arm that's going to do these things. I'm going to bring the judgment. I, I, I'm in control of all these things. That's what He wants us to hear as He says these things, as He gives us the second, listen to me, that I'm in control is what He's saying. Um. Verse 5 again, my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. Deliverance was going to come to the captive, the nation of Israel. They were captive in Babylon, and deliverance is going to come for them. But even greater than that, deliverance is going to come from our greatest enemy, and that's sin. And that's available through Messiah. The coastlands, that's you and I. That's the, the farthest reaches of the earth. Everybody is going to have redemption available to them. Anybody that trusts in the arm of the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But 
My salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. So verse 6 is a compare and contrast. Look at the heavens. Look at the earth. It's all going to dissipate. It's all going to pass away. The earth will grow old like an old coat. Those who dwell in it are going to die. You and I get 70, 80, maybe 90 years. If you come from good stock, you might pass the 100 mark. If you don't get hit by a bus first. Nobody, we don't know the number of days that are promised to us. We will all pass away. But the eternality of God doesn't pass away. His promises last forever. His salvation will be forever. His righteousness will not be abolished. This is how much greater God is and the things that He brings than, than you and I are. Verse 7, listen to me. You who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. The third, listen to me. He's speaking to the, his people. They're to, we're to be marked with a, a fear of God and not a fear of men. Who do you let speak into your life? Who, who has a voice in your ear? Are you just filling your head with what everybody else would say about you? Or are you letting the promises of God speak to you as to who you are? I also get to write the devotional every month for Leap of Faith, the dance company. And every class does a short devotional at the end of their class. And that's what I wrote on this month was our identity. You guys recognize that in in 1 Peter, we get called a royal priesthood? You guys, you scares me, some of you. (laughs) For those who follow Christ, for those who trust in him, we are a royal priesthood. We've been adopted into the family of God. And we need to, and I'm not trying to name it, claim it here. I'm just standing on the promises of God who who has adopted us into his family that, that we recognize who and whose we are. Who do we let speak into our lives? We're not to be afraid of their insults. We're not to fear the reproach of men. Our fear should be in the Lord. Why? Look at verse 8. This is a great verse. This is speaking about the men that would speak against you, speak reproach into your life. Verse 8. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Why shouldn't we fear men? Because moth and worm will best men eventually. We will be beaten by moths and worms, you and I will. When we're six feet under the ground, right? That's, um, uh, you know, your corpse is a carnival for worms. <laughs> as, it, as the worms work their way through your rib cage and have a great time, you get bested by moths and worms. That's why we don't worry about what people say about us, because eventually we all end up that way. Why shouldn't we fear men? Because moth and worm best us eventually, yet God is forever. His ways are forever. His righteousness forever. Salvation from generation to generation. So he says in verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength. O arm of the Lord, awake as in ancient days, in the generations of old. 
Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? What an interesting statement. When did that happen? When did Rahab get cut apart? Well, this isn't, I don't think this is talking about Rahab of Jericho. This is, um, some would believe that um, a female counterpart to Leviathan was known as Rahab. And that's what, what Isaiah is saying here is, God, you've defeated all other gods. You've defeated what everybody has worshipped. Uh, the word serpent there at the end of verse 9, I think in, in, um, in the King James is uh, translated as dragon. Uh, the overarching term would be the term Leviathan, and Rahab would be the female counterpart to that, uh, is my understanding of it. And, and what, what he's saying there is, is, put on strength. You're the one God that has defeated these all so-called other gods. Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, he says in verse 10, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? What's he talking about there? The Red Sea, right? He, he parted the waters. He dried up the sea and, and made it a way that they could cross over. The Red Sea at one point is 7,500 feet deep. Think about that. If that's, if that's where the Israelites walked through, and I don't think they walked through right there necessarily, but it could have been about 5,700 feet deep. That's almost a mile, right? 5,820 feet is a mile. Could you imagine walking along on dry land with a mile of water standing next to you, straight up? Oh, that'd be pretty intense. God did it. God was able to do it. The redeemed crossed over. He's talking about the Red Sea. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is as you come out of Babylon, you're going to be filled with singing as you've been released by at the hand of Cyrus, who will let you go back to Jerusalem. You'll have joy on your hands, heads. But this is speaking more than just deliverance from Babylon because it says an everlasting joy. This is speaking of deliverance from our sin as well. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of man who will die, and of the son of a man who will be made like grass? And you forget the Lord your Maker, who stretched, you, or sorry, stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the, the oppressor? God's saying, don't fear Babylon. Don't fear the captor. God's in control of all these things. He, he sent you to Babylon for the purpose of, you, uh, re, of correcting you from your idolatry. So don't fear him because I, the delivering is coming. Verse 14, the captive exile hastens that he may be loosed that he should not die in the pit, and that he, his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundation of the earth and say to Zion, you are my people. God covers us. In the shadow of his hand, before there was even a creation, before he laid the foundations of the earth, 
God called us as his own. Before there was anything, he, he, he placed his hand over us. You know, I, I think you know this, but the sin in the garden didn't catch God off guard, right? He didn't create everything in six days, rested on the seventh day and said, man, that was a good plan. Let's see what happens, right? And then Eve eats the fruit and sin enters the world and he goes, oh, God goes, nuts. What are we going to do now? They ruined my plan. No. God knew from the, before the foundations of the earth, he held us in the shadow of his hand. He had a, a plan long before that, before there was anything. The sin in the garden didn't catch him off guard. Um, verse 17, right? Awake, awake, stand up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. He's saying, awake up. You have experienced, and this is, this is God telling him, you've experienced the hand of God in judgment. You drank the dregs. That's the, the nasty part of the wine. That's the, the chunky part at the bottom of the barrel. That's the, the, the part you wouldn't give to your worst enemy. That's like drinking a cup of coffee with coffee grounds in it. Ugh. I remember when I was eight or nine or 10 years old, I went to a party. I think it was probably one of the first times I ever got to drink a Mountain Dew. And I was drinking the Mountain Dew, and, and then I you know, set it down and walked away, and I went back to it, and I took a big drink of it, and somebody had used my can as an ashtray. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's to drink the dregs. And, and God's saying, you, you've drunk the dregs, uh, the things that I've poured out. Awake, you know, stand up, Jerusalem. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Yes, you've experienced my judgment. Yes, I sent you to Babylon, but now wake up and watch what's going to happen. Look at, look at what's going to happen now. Verse 18. There's no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have come to you, who will be sorry for you, desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, they re the rebuke of your God. Therefore, please hear this, so you afflicted and drunk, not, or sorry, and drunk, but not with wine. So verses 18 to 21 are the results of the hand of God against his people, chastising them by sending them to Babylon. But watch how things change. Verse 22, thus says the Lord, the Lord and your God who pleads the cause of his people. Now he's going to say, now I'm defending you. Now I'm going to stand on your behalf. See, I've taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury, you shall no longer drink it. So now God is saying, yes, you have experienced that, but now I'm going to fight on your behalf. He's taking the cup of, of his trembling out of, his, out of our hands. We're not to drink it any longer, but I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you, who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you and have laid your body, laid, and have laid your body like the ground and as the street for those who walk over. 
So he takes the cup of trembling that he gave to the nation of Israel in order to chastise them by sending them to Babylon. He's going to take it from them and actually give it to those who took him captive. He's going to give it to the nation of Babylon. How does that happen? God raises up Cyrus of Persia. And he, Cyrus then defeats the Babylonians. And all of a sudden, it's no longer the Israelites that have the cup of trembling. It's the Babylonians that have the cup of trembling. God's punishing the Babylonians for the way they treated the Israelites. We talked about that last week. But ultimately, we see this in Jesus, who takes the cup of trembling, God's judgment upon us. And through the exchange that he mentions in communion, where he lifts up the cup, the third cup of the, the, um, the Passover meal. The third cup was a special cup. They raised four different cups of wine during the Seder meal. And the third cup was the cup of fellowship. It's the cup after the meal. That's what it says as he's giving communion. And in that cup of fellowship, he says, this is now a new covenant of my blood. This is now, this is now a, a, the, the cup of fellowship I'm bringing through my blood. I'm bringing you back into fellowship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so what he's saying is, let's exchange cups. I'll take the cup of trembling. I'll take the dregs. I'll take the wrath of God poured out that you deserve, and I'll drink it. That's what he does on the cross. And then he offers to you and I, not the cup of trembling any longer, but now the cup of fellowship to say that through this, me absorbing your wrath, through me paying the price on the cross, you have fellowship, you have access to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So just a few more verses. Mm. No, we'll end there. I was going to get to through most of chapter 52, but I'll hold off. We'll, uh, we'll hold off till next week. It, it just keeps building on that idea. But let's end with that idea that God has taken our wrath, our cup of trembling, that which we rightly deserved. He drank it to the dregs and offered us rather the sweet wine of fellowship. Amen? All right, let's stand. Let's close in prayer. We sang tonight, Lord, that you are so good to us, that you are beautiful and you are our sweet song, Lord. And through these words, we see how that has come about, that even before the foundation of the earth was laid, you held us in the palm of your hand. That the cup of wrath that I deserve has been drunk by you, sweet Jesus. And the cup of fellowship has been extended to me through the cross. Lord, how could we not be a thankful people if we would just keep our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith? I pray, Father, if we're walking in darkness tonight, if the shadows of this land have overwhelmed us, Lord, that we wouldn't try to set our own fire or create our own light, God, that we wouldn't bring in um, strange fire into your temple, God, but God, that we would set our eyes on you, that we would seek out the light that you are, 
that we would stand firmly on the promises of God, that you've adopted us as your sons and daughters. May we seek you first in all things. Father, as we go from this place, I pray that you would keep us safe, that you would guide and direct us. We ask it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.